0: Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it
1: a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting
0: payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase,
1: to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash
0: system.
2: A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
0: There was a chill in the air on September 24th, 1981 in the small rural community of Carstairs, about a half hour drive north of Calgary. In the middle of the night, a two-year-old girl wearing only a nightie was found on a street outside of the local post office. What happened that fateful night changed the course of a little girl's life forever.
3: I remember even though I was only two and a half, And the
0: memories will always stay in there, and they've scarred me. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. Today, on Crime Beat, I want to share a story that I've covered for more than two decades. One that shows that a crime can sometimes come with a lifelong sentence for the victim. This is Stolen Innocence. first started working on this case in the spring of 1998 as a young crime reporter in central Alberta when the RCMP issued a public notification, a warning that a repeat sex offender was being released from prison and that he was a high risk to re-offend. His name, David John Hummel. He was 40 years old at that time. Five years earlier, In 1993, he sexually assaulted a woman in Edmonton. He later pleaded guilty and was given a six-month jail sentence. Also in Edmonton in 1993, he sexually assaulted a teenage girl in the middle of the afternoon. According to court documents, it was a stranger attack. Hummel grabbed the 16-year-old from behind and pulled her to the ground— He tried to undo the fly on her jeans, but she fought back and scratched him, and he eventually took off. Hummel was sentenced to one year in jail. The prosecution appealed and argued Hummel's extensive history of sexual deviancy, coupled with chronic alcohol abuse, warranted a longer sentence. He was on probation at the time of the offense. Alberta's top court, increased his sentence to four years. The appeal court judgment noted that Hummel was in prison from 1982 to 1990, then spent two years in a mental hospital where he declined to participate in treatment programs designed to deal with his sexual deviancy. The justice stated, quote, This lack of motivation and failure to recognize that he has a problem are both factors which indicate the continuing need to emphasize not only general deterrence, but individual deterrence. End quote. It was recommended that his sentence should be served at a psychiatric facility. His release in 1998 came with the public warning I was assigned to cover. That's when I met a young woman whose shocking and tragic story has stayed with me even decades later. Strangely, her identity was not protected when this happened. But considering the crime and concerns for her safety and privacy, I won't use her real name. Instead, I'll call her Donna. When I first sat down with her in 1998, she was 19 years old. Accompanied by her mother, Donna tearfully told me about a night 17 years earlier that changed their lives forever. In 1981, Donna and her family lived in the small town of Crossfield, just north of Calgary. It was a small, quiet town, and back then, a lot of people didn't even lock their doors. But the family was planning to have deadbolts installed that week, so it wasn't a huge concern when there were some delays. That September 23rd, Donna and her older sister were tucked into bed. In the middle of the night, their father was woken up by the older sister. She said someone took Donna. Their father thought she must've been dreaming, but he got up to check and realized what his daughter was saying was true. Donna was gone. Her dad ran out of the house, but he was too late and could only watch helplessly as the car sped away. Donna's parents were frantic. They called the RCMP and immediately a search for the little girl began. Hours later, she was found on a street in the neighboring town of Carstairs.
3: I remember even though I was only two and a half and the memories will always stay in there
0: and they've scarred me. I need to warn you, the details of what Donna and her mother shared with me in our interview from 1998 are extremely disturbing.
3: At first I can remember I woke up with my legs spread wide open and he had a lighter at my genitals. He had tried to penetrate her. She was only two and a half years old. There is no way in God's green earth that would ever physically be possible. But he masturbated all around, all over her.
0: Her mother told me Donna was rushed to hospital. Investigators learned before he took Donna, the same offender broke into another home in the Crossfield area where he assaulted a woman. David John Hummel was 24 years old. He was charged with kidnapping and two counts of indecent assault. By 1998, nearly 20 years had passed since the attack. But the terror Hummel caused that night was still very much alive in Donna and her family. He's a
3: sick bastard. I don't think he should be out with the public. He should remain behind bars for the rest of his life because he's going to repeat. I believe he'll always pose a risk to the public. He's an untreated, violent sexual offender, and I don't believe that will, will ever go away.
0: 1998 was the last time David Hummel's name made headlines. But I've thought about Donna many times over the years. I decided to try and track her down. I needed to know how she was doing, how her life has turned out, if she's okay. As you can imagine, it wasn't easy to find her. It took me months. But finally, I found someone on social media who I thought might be her. I sent her a message and asked if she remembered me from our story more than 20 years earlier. A few hours later, I received a response. It was her. We chatted back and forth, and about a month later, we met again in person. Donna brought photos of newspaper clippings from 1981 when her picture was shown on the front page. Which is completely outrageous. I... I... I don't understand why they would do that. I was known that. that girl. Because her identity was not protected, Donna said everyone in her small town knew what happened. You might think people would be compassionate, given the awful abuse she suffered. But growing up, she said kids were mean. She vividly remembers the words of one little boy. He's
3: like, oh, yeah. I no wonder they returned you after being kidnapped.
0: Minutes after we sat down together, she broke down as she told me about how things had only gotten progressively worse in her life since we last spoke. You
3: can't imagine what it's done to me. I have, I've thrown relationships to the curb. Potential marriage. All because I can't deal with it. You you just don't understand what
0: it does to you. So growing up, was it talked about in your house? No, No, not at all.
3: But uh, I have to live with it. it. It doesn't stop. It won't stop. You can put it in the back of your mind, but at the same time, it's always there. People said I would never remember, but I remember every single detail. When people have tragic events happen at a little age, they block it out, and I didn't. I remember it. Detail. I can remember the the nightie I was wearing. I can see everything. (laughs) It's clear as day. Especially the lighter. That is very vivid. I'm sorry, when you have your pajamas, which is a cloth, basically sheets. And you have it really ripped it up, and he's got your legs split right apart. You can't. I remember waking up and him having a lighter to my vagina. I remember being
0: burned. I remember him touching me. Decades later, the nightmares still keep her awake at night.
3: Night terrors. Yeah, I, I have night terrors still to this day. People don't realize how it affects you. I guess that's why I turned to drugs. My parents put me through a $23,000 treatment center,
0: and I have never touched crack ever since. Like, had you ever up to that point gone through counseling or anything? No, nobody ever offered it to me. For years, Donna has purposely tried to make herself hard to find. This whole time, living in fear of her attacker. If you search for David John Hummel online, you won't find much. There are a few people who share his same name, but you won't find anything about the man who attacked Donna. How does it make you feel like that, like, he's kind of like a ghost now? Like, you can't find anything about him online. He's somebody who's done very bad things many times now. There's no record of him. If you Google him, there's nothing. And I I think, just beware.
3: That's the only thing I can say. Like, um, I can only do so much to hide my identity
0: like for me it's like I always wondered what had happened to you and like it's so sad to me to think that nobody's ever helped you deal with what you went through and
3: I've picked up my my whole entire life I, I lived in Toronto a spur of the moment thing drove there Thirty-six
0: aggravating hours. (laughs) Like you've just wanted to kind of start fresh before, yeah, and that doesn't work either.
3: Yeah, no,
0: it follows you everywhere you go. Would you like to know? Like, do you wish you could look up where he is? For like, would that give you peace of mind? It would actually. Donna's story has stayed with me for almost as long as I've been a crime reporter. So, for two years after my second interview with her, I committed to digging up information. I wanted to provide her with answers to find out what happened to Hummel and where he ended up. I'll be honest, it's been a frustrating process. I checked in with police agencies in Alberta, and most were very helpful but didn't have the information I was looking for. The Edmonton Police Service refused to help me at all. I asked to do an interview with one of the original investigators from the attack in the mid-90s. EPS didn't respond to that request. Instead, told me to submit a Freedom of Information request, or FOIP. You've probably heard of FOIP requests. Journalists often make these applications for documents that aren't public and are often connected with a scandal. So, it was surprising to me when they asked me to submit one for what I needed, which honestly made me wonder what they were hiding. So, I went ahead and sent one in. Interestingly, it was denied. I also attempted to track down the original investigators in Donna's case from 1981— which turned out to be a huge undertaking as well. You have to think, when this happened, I was only a little girl myself. So beyond what Donna told me, I haven't been able to learn many investigative details on this case other than what I could glean from newspaper archives. And as a journalist, I don't depend on other reporters' work. I need to learn information firsthand. So... I kept pushing to try and find one of those original investigators. I checked in with a lot of retired police officers and asked if they remembered the case. Many did, but no one could recall the names of the officers directly involved. I put in requests to different courthouses in Alberta, looking for any documents relating to Hummel's history. What I learned is most files, with the exception of murder cases, are destroyed. I often work on many stories at the same time, and as the years went by, I stayed on Donna's case. Finally, I was able to track down a witness list from 1981. It included the names of four RCMP officers. I ran their names by other retired officers I know, but no luck. That is until a few days before New Year's. As I sat down to write this episode, I made one last ditch attempt to track down one of these investigators. I reached out to one more friend who was a longtime RCMP officer. Sure enough, he recognized one of the names, and he was able to connect me with Dave Idet.
4: I was a rookie constable with the RCMP at the time. I had about a year's service, give or take.
0: Dave Idet was with the RCMP for more than 40 years and only recently retired. He was working the night Donna was kidnapped.
4: And, and it's funny, I've only just recently had to turn over all my old notebooks to um, to the RCMP, and I actually had those from had my notebooks from back then. It would have been interesting to to, to have a look at the notes I made
0: before we spoke he pulled out a scrapbook he made, filled with newspaper clippings of cases he's worked on throughout his career. In it, he saw the front page article about Donna's abduction, and memories of that night came flooding back. Through IDET, I was finally able to get a first-hand account of the investigation into Donna's case.
4: We got some information that an abduction had occurred from a home. In Crossfield, a two-year-old girl had been taken. And if I remember correctly, there is a description, somewhat of a description of a car. But what I do remember was the witness had said that there was uh, horizontal taillights.
0: Every officer who was available that night in 1981 was out looking for Donna and a vehicle matching the description her father had given police.
4: It was... uh, like a, a massive effort was put forth by the police, and there was I think, firefighters and and uh, family members and friends of family that were out looking for this particular vehicle and such. I mean, it was it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. I mean, everybody had Kelly Cook on the mind, right? And the outcome there wasn't good.
0: You'll remember from previous Crime Beat episodes that 15-year-old Kelly Cook was abducted from the rural community of Standard, Alberta, just five months earlier. In April of 1981, she was later found murdered.
4: And you know that—that's kind of—I wouldn't say we res- you resign yourself, but you know you you hope for the best and fear the worst. Being just a, a barely a rookie constable, a year's service, and just you know, it was it was all surreal almost, you know, and uh, you know your training kicks in and, and you do your best.
0: As the search continued through the night, Idet was tasked with patrolling the town of Carstairs.
4: I remember I got this call from the Red Deer dispatcher telling me that this lady uh, was out in front of the Carstairs Hotel, which was on the main drag in Carstairs. And she was there with with a, a vehicle matching the description and a man and a little girl.
0: Constable Idet said he raced to that area. And sure enough, there was the missing girl.
4: Yeah, she was in her pajamas. Or ninety, maybe uh, something like that. And I remember, I do remember, she was crying and she was scared and she was cold.
0: I should note this was not a who done it. A woman who spotted Donna on the street and car stairs called police. When IDET arrived, the suspect was still nearby, waiting by a vehicle matching the description given to police by Donna's father.
4: I remember the taillights... There was four horizontal taillights in this car. And I remember seeing that. And he actually said to me, uh, when I picked the girl up and put her in the police car, he said she was crying and he said, she wants me. And that's how I made the connection.
0: I'm not sure if you caught that, but the man who kidnapped Donna told the officer, she wants me.
4: And why that sticks out is probably just because he was a rather uh, sick individual like I say I put her in the police car to keep her separate locked it put the keys in my pocket and then I dealt with him and I in the meantime I'd also contacted Airdrie uh, detachment and uh frankly to this day I don't think there's been that many police cars and carsters at one time but uh it, they all arrived and uh took him into custody.
0: Ida later testified in the preliminary inquiry, and that was the end of his role in the investigation. But like me, this case has stayed with him.
4: See, I I often wondered, you know, occasionally, whatever happened to her, how she fared in life and this kind of thing. And the one thing I learned in my career is, is things like this, they have a lingering effect. If you don't get the proper counseling, treatment, and even then, sometimes it, it still lingers. So, you know, I have nothing but sympathy for the people that, that are the victims in this case.
0: He's also wondered whatever happened to the offender he arrested that night, David Hummel.
4: It, it never ceases to amaze me how these guys keep getting released and allowed to reoffend again. You know, like sometimes I think, uh, like I'm not a lock them up and throw away the key kind of kind of guy. I mean, everybody can make a mistake, but people like that, you know, like as you pointed out, he went on to uh, assault a 16-year-old girl in Edmonton and so on. You know, like, how many times do we have to let this guy get away with this before we put him away?
1: I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire.
0: Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit Canadiantruecrime.ca. After years of searching and through the help of some amazing people at the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench, recently I was able to obtain a few documents related to Hummel dating back to 1981. This was the first real insight I got into Hummel's history. In the fall of 1981, following his arrest for Donna's kidnapping and sexual assault, Hummel was admitted to a forensic unit in a Calgary hospital for a 30-day psychiatric assessment. Keep in mind, the assessment happened more than 40 years ago. So some of the terminology that would be used today was much different back then. Doctors found, quote, Mr. Hummel does not suffer from any mental illness of a psychotic kind, that is, those that may impair contact with reality. End quote. Psychological test results placed Hummel's intellectual potential at the very low level of the borderline range, and doctors noted his intellectual potential is limited and has personality shortcomings that make him inadequate and socially. Poorly equipped to compete. His tests indicated he was dissatisfied with his sex life based on poor relational skills with women. They also did a physical exam, routine lab work, and skull x-rays. No problems were found. Hummel is the third youngest of seven kids in a family doctors said was best described as poverty-stricken. The report stated Hummel's father was often away at work and emotionally aloof. His mother was somewhat overprotective. Hummel was slow to achieve developmental milestones and was a bedwetter until he was about seven years old and was picked on for being slow. He attended special schools until he finished grade seven. After school, he stayed home working with his mother at home for three years, then moved away for work. But the report noted he didn't have much success in his adult life. Doctors noted he had problems relating to people and most of his spare time was spent drinking at home alone and that Hummel abused alcohol. Doctors recommended further psychiatric care but went on to question if treatment would be effective, given his lack of participation in the month-long assessment. Hummel was found to be aware of the nature of the charges and the consequences if he were to be found guilty. He was deemed fit to stand trial. However, he later pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to eight years in prison for kidnapping Donna with intent to cause her to be confined against her will. Concurrent to that, he was sentenced to four years for indecent assault and five years for the indecent assault of the second Crossfield woman. I mentioned earlier that Hummel didn't make the headlines after 1998, but as predicted through the high-risk offender notification, he did re-offend. Through the courts, I was able to find out Hummel pleaded guilty to indecent exposure in February of 2001. He was given a suspended sentence of 18 months probation and later breached a condition not to possess or consume alcohol. He pleaded guilty to that charge in September of 2001 and was given another suspended sentence of 10 months probation. His next offense was an impaired driving charge that he pleaded guilty to in June of 2010. After that, he went off the radar. There are no further criminal charges. To get further insight into what could have happened to Hummel, I spoke with RCMP Corporal Andrea Nadeau. She runs the Alberta RCMP High Risk Offender Programme. Corporal Nadeau has been an officer for 21 years, so she wasn't involved with Hummel's high-risk warning in 1998. As I mentioned, the police files on Hummel have long been destroyed, so she can't speak specifically to this case. But I asked her how someone like this, who is the subject of a public notification, could then just basically disappear. They're only for 24 months. If an offender um, shows that they're
1: not offending, they're attending their appointments, they're going to their programming, they're talking with um, whatever probation officer they're supposed to meet with, they're doing all the things that the order is asking them to, then once they're done that 24 months, then they've served their time and they're pretty much free to go. Uh, He's done his sentence, he did two years of conditions, So then he's free to go and for the police to keep knocking on his door, um, we don't have any uh, court document that says that we're allowed to go and keep checking on this guy. So if we did do that and it has happened before, you know, then we become targeting people and profiling them and harassing them. So uh, a lot of times if somebody does well on their 810, after the 810 is over, then You know, unless they start coming to the attention of police that we need to consider rewriting again, they're free to go and live their life without being under the microscope of police supervision.
0: But she told me the bar for those warnings is high. And that particular charge of indecent exposure isn't necessarily considered a serious offence. Corporal Nadeau said, Offender management is a growing priority for many police agencies. And the goal now isn't just to keep tabs on a criminal, but rather to give them the tools they need to keep from reoffending. Share information, work
1: together, get the proper people involved that um, know what they're doing. So that's why I always say that it ends up being more like the police are navigators. I try and bring my offenders to a door that's open rather than telling them, you need to go to counseling. So you need to find a counselor. You need to go to the doctor. And a lot of these guys are like, okay, but how do I do that? I don't know how to do that and jail is easy because i didn't have to make a decision and now i have to take the bus and i have like social anxiety because i've been in jail and i don't like people touching me i want to punch them in the face or you know i i don't even know how to make a phone call uh, to get there i don't know what doctor to go to if i go to a clinic and somebody looks at me and is rude to me right away i leave because i have anxiety so it's like looking at all those little factors that interrupt them getting better and trying to alleviate for them, make them more comfortable and send them to a door that's open so they'll be more successful. And that hasn't always traditionally been police work.
0: Given he has no other criminal convictions past 2010, there's no evidence that Hummel continued to commit sexual offenses. But Corporal Nadeau said a lack of charges doesn't always tell the whole story. He quite possibly
1: could have offended. Uh, a lot of victims have different reasons sometimes for not reporting. You know, there's there's a lot of fear in that. Uh, I don't know his uh, offending patterns, but yeah, there could quite possibly be people that hear that come forward and say, you know, I was offended against by this male. I've had women come 10 years later, finally I'm ready to talk about it. Um, Or sometimes, you know, they just don't ever want to relive it because truthfully going through the court process, um, it's not easy and it's not fun because you have to maybe, um, you definitely have to go and relive those events because the judge wants to know the story, the Crown wants to know the story. When the police find out about it, they interview you. So they want to know the story. So if you're not ready to disclose all this personal information about yourself, um, you might not be willing to tell your story four or five times by the time it gets to trial, you know, and and be prepared for having a defense attorney maybe try and, and um, you know, represent their client, which can be quite traumatic as well for a victim.
0: Of course, there are other possibilities. Some people change, (laughs) and I
1: had offenders who have uh, utilized the tools, the conditions, and have done really well long-term in their life. So we always have to give those people a chance. Um, The courts say we do. A lot of people, things that destabilize them are their past trauma. Um, their addictions, um, mental health. Those are like the big pillars. So maybe maybe he was clean and sober for a couple of years and then he decided to use again and then he offended. Or maybe he was in a consenting relationship with somebody, fulfilled his need, and then there's a breakup and he had some, you know, destabilizers in his life and then he offended again. But then he maybe had support to get him back stable. So when somebody is an imminent risk, there has to be a set of factors that we go through their history and identify. Um, we call them the triggers. So whatever triggers for this man in his life, once they start to be present again, he becomes an imminent risk. He could be an imminent risk. Like I said, for two years and not offend, he has those triggers. Maybe he's using porn to, um, satisfy him or whatever but they're there and uh, for whatever reason he decides not to offend and then one day he offends and it's this like big horrific one and people are like what happened Uh, usually there's a lead-up of destabilizers leading up to that
0: i've been working on this episode since we launched crime beat in early 2019 It took me until January of 2020 to reconnect with Donna. For the next two years, I tried to track down Hummel. I exhausted every possible avenue I could think of. I checked for possible criminal charges in various provinces, which came up empty. I couldn't find any social media presence. Every month I checked obituaries, nationwide. Again, nothing. And then finally, as I was writing this episode, I got my answer. It's honestly not the news I was expecting. I needed to be certain. So again, I triple-checked obituaries. Nothing. I tried to confirm through registries and vital statistics. In Canada, these provincial agencies keep official records of births, deaths, marriages, and divorces, but the search requests were denied. Apparently, confirmation of death is only accessible by the public if it happens 50 years prior. Had it not been for several confidential sources, I would not have been able to confirm what I learned about Hummel. Finally, it was time to call Donna. Hello? Hey, it's Nancy. Hey, Nancy. It's been a while it since we spoke. A long while, yes. As you know, I really wanted to be able to get you some answers. So... I've kind of held off on sharing your story because I wanted to wait until I had those answers for you. Um, okay. So that I didn't kind of just leave you hanging because I know for years you've kind of, you know, been looking over your shoulder wondering where Hummel is and, you know, it. it's taken me <laughs> this long to get those answers for you. And it was only mm-hmm. just recently through confidential sources that I was able to confirm that he has passed away. In oh, okay. Yeah, he passed away in September of 2020. Wow. Now that you have that answer, how do you feel about that?
2: You know, it is a sense of relief in the fact that he can't harm anyone else. Child or adults?
0: Donna told me she still wonders if there are other victims out there.
2: It doesn't mean that he didn't continue doing it. It's just he didn't get caught.
0: I also told her I was able to track down the officer who rescued her back in
2: 1981. You know, uh, I've often wondered what he thought at those moments. When he picked me up and put me in that cop car. But I remember the stripe on his fat leg. I remember those exact details of being put into the cop car and then running from door to door trying to get out because I was so, so scared. I didn't know what was going on.
0: I told Donna the officer is now retired and said he often thought about her and wondered how she was doing all these years later. Our conversation then shifted From the monster that haunted her to the hero who rescued her.
2: Wow. Well, that kind of brought tears to my eyes. (laughs) Let him know that I'm okay. That I'm still here. (laughs) Kicking away. Sometime down the road in the future. um, If he wants to ever meet me, I'm up for that.
0: A special thank you to donna for her patience as i've worked on this and for trusting me to share her story crime beat is written and produced by me nancy hickst with producer dila velasquez audio editing and sound design is by rob johnston special thanks to photographer editor danny lentella for his work on this episode And thanks to Chris Bassett, the acting VP of National and Network News for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.
2: Hi. Her name is Elsbeth.
0: Elsbeth Tassioli.
2: You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee.
0: Buzz buzz.
2: Now she's in New York with the NYPD.
3: This is very different.
2: Better. But still
4: using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss (laughs) Tasione? Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.